Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. In recent weeks, over 10,000 people have fled from English-speaking regions of Cameroon to neighboring Nigeria. They are fleeing amidst an ongoing crackdown by Cameroonian security forces against a movement that is demanding greater autonomy for English-speaking regions from the French-dominated central government. In Cameroon, the struggle for more equal political rights and power by English-speaking regions is a long-standing issue. It's commonly known as the, quote, Anglophone problem. Over the past couple of years, a protest movement has gained increased strength and visibility, and over the past several months, the government response to this movement has become increasingly violent and draconian. Meanwhile, some fringe splinter groups have decided to take up arms against the government. This ongoing crisis and potentially brewing conflict is a big sleeper issue going into the new year. It is one of those off-the-radar crises that does not attract a great deal of attention, but has both significant regional and global implications. On the line with me to explain what is going on in Cameroon and why we should be paying attention to developments there is Jonathan Morse, an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Connecticut. He explains how this crisis is rooted in Cameroon's unique post-colonial history and why these long-simmering tensions are now starting to boil over. This is a great conversation. I was happy to be able to shine a spotlight on this important but perhaps overlooked issue. And before we begin, a quick favor to ask you, uh, about 80% of you who listen to this show use the iTunes app to listen to Global Dispatches podcast, and I would so love it if you could leave a review on iTunes, and I've made it very easy for you to do so. Simply open the description field of this episode and you will find instructions on how to leave a review on iTunes. It's uh, very helpful. It's a good way to increase the visibility of this podcast among those who are searching for foreign policy podcasts using iTunes, which is still the single most popular way that people access their podcasts. I, I so thank you. It would be, frankly, a selfless act. You would be helping other people who are similarly minded find this show. Thank you all in advance. And now here is my conversation with Jonathan Morse. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. It's because it's of great concern, I think, to people, especially in the State Department, who I've spoken to are very concerned about what's going on. Well, let me let me start there. Why are they concerned about what's going on? Well, you know, the past there's an ongoing crisis that's really started in October of 2016, 
And it's gone through these waves of escalation and de-escalation. And now we're sort of at the, almost seems like in another really escalation of the conflict with the military being deployed, deployed to um, English-speaking regions of Cameroon, uh, an increase of attacks of, of overt separatist groups against security forces in Cameroon, which is why you're reading about 15,000 refugees or so into Nigeria, lots of internationally displaced people, uh, burnt down villages. And it's really of concern for U.S. policy because this long this, this crisis has been long coming. It's been simmering since independence in Cameroon. There's lots of long-term causes, lots of immediate causes of the crisis. But it, it really threatens to destabilize what uh, is the gateway to Central Africa. It's a major port for Central African Republic. Uh, there's already tension in other parts of Cameroon and northern Cameroon with the fight against Boko Haram on the Nigerian border. So uh, th- this escalation is, is, is quite concerning and so, uh, very different from what it was a year ago. And, and, and we'll get into the, to the history a little bit and the roots of, of this conflict. But yeah, as you noted, it, it is worthwhile to explain that Cameroon is a longtime strategic partner of the United States in, in the region. It's, a, a sta- it's been a stable government, a stable place for decades now. And, and the U.S. has certain um, military capacities that it's invested in in Cameroon to fight, say, the Boko Haram insurgency and other uh, security threats in the region. Yeah, it was stable. It was stable <laughs> for a political scientist versus somebody in foreign policy can mean different things. You know, Cameroon hasn't had a major civil war, hasn't had state breakdown. Uh, but there's been, I, I've observed, lots of underlying tensions that should be concerning for U.S. foreign policy makers who see Cameroon as a stable partner in the war against terror. Uh, but yes, you're correct. You know, especially since really 2002 or so, uh, Cameroon has become a much more important strategic partner for the United States. Uh, it really began with the war on terror and the invasion of Iraq. The United States lobbied heavily to get a Security Council abstention or vote for a war resolution in the buildup to the war in Iraq because Cameroon held a temporary seat then. Yeah, that's right. Just, just to remind people, Cameroon was one of the f- 10 rotating members of the Security Council at right. the time. And there was this big, big push by the Bush administration to get the Security Council to approve the uh, Iraq war. But Right. And Cameroon, which is traditionally and historically in the French orbit, uh, so the U.S. made this lobbying effort towards the president of Cameroon, Paul Bia, to try to at least get them to abstain from a vote. Now, it never really came up to a vote, but ever since then... The U.S. has really invested more heavily in this strategic partnership, uh, becoming a a broker over territorial disputes between Cameroon and Nigeria, um, trying to get Cameroon to vote uh, its way in the United Nations and and other issues, uh, and increasing security cooperation, and especially since the growth of Boko Haram in northern Nigeria. So today, there are about probably 300 U.S. troops stationed in northern Cameroon in a drone base, I believe, as well. Um, so let's go, go back a, a little bit because you, you did mention earlier that I am seeing and, and we are seeing reports and I, I follow reports of the UN Refugee Agency pretty closely um, of increasing numbers of refugees, people fleeing from English speaking regions to um, uh, parts of Nigeria as as part of like a, a broader uh, crisis that has been escalating, as you said, over the last couple of years. But can we step a, a back a little bit and explain sort of the history of Cameroon and how it was formed out of sort of former British and, and French colonies? Yeah. So 
So the longer term sort of issues that have been simmering for decades in Cameroon um, date, back to, date back to Cameroon's really unique colonial experience. Uh, Cameroon was initially a German colony. And then after World War II, it lost its holdings and the League of Nations uh, basically divided the territory into a British and a French territory. The British territory is much, much smaller. The French territory much, much larger. Uh, the names get confusing because the British territory was called North and Southern British Cameroon, but geographically it's in southwestern of all of Cameroon today. And um, in 1960, after French Cameroon gained, gained independence, uh, a referendum was passed in the British holdings of Cameroon of whether they wanted to enter into some sort of political union with uh, Nigeria or with what was French Cameroon. And parts of that British territory entered into this federal alliance with the French uh, Cameroonian territory. And that's when the Federal Republic of Cameroon was born in 1961. And it was one of the only federal systems in all of sub-Saharan Africa, the other major example being Nigeria. And But this was a very lopsided form of federalism. A lot of the English-speaking areas that entered into negotiations with the French leaders were, were not prepared, did not have a lot of leverage, and it left a lot of power in the capital, in Yaounde, to control basically who gets politically appointed to be governors of regions, where the budget gets directed, and so forth. And so gradually after 1961, which was the year of unification of British and French Cameroon, there was a process of political centralization. So one of the first steps that Cameroon's first real president, Ahmadou Ahidjo, passed was to ban other political parties. So he could use the classic state move of the post-revolutionary uh, uh, yes. governments in, in Southern right. Africa. Yeah. Up until 1966, there were three or four political parties in French Cameroon. There were two major political parties in British Cameroon. And through a like, clever use, again, of the purse strings of the apparatus of the state, he was able to cajole all these other leaders to give up their political parties and enter into what became the Cameroonian National Union, the single party that governed all of Cameroon. Mm -hmm. And then between 1966 then and 1972, this process of centralization increased. The president of Cameroon had the authority to declare states of emergency. This is a heritage from an uprising that took place during French colonialism, uh, could restructure the country into a number of new regions could appoint the governors of those regions. And so the centralization continued. But by 1972, uh, a referendum was put in front of Cameroonian citizens whether they wanted to abolish federalism or not, and it overwhelmingly passed to create the United Republic of Cameroon and abolish federalism. And so... I presumably that throughout this process, all of the centralization of power was perhaps at the expense of English-speaking regions? Well, they felt they had very little negotiating power or leverage during this. And part of the centralization was to deal with issues in what was historically the French territory of Cameroon. And Anglophones, as they refer to themselves as Anglophones, as Southern Cameroonians, uh, again, the geography gets confusing because it's not technically Southern Cameroon, it's Southern, what used to be British Cameroon, um, refer to, like, uh, during this period of centralization, that, for instance, economic investments were shifted away from those regions into French Cameroon. In particular, there are uh, a lot of grievance over the fact that the Douala port, which is a port in French Cameroon, was invested in much more heavily than an Anglophone Cameroon in Limbe, despite the fact that the port in Douala had to be dredged every year to get ships inside, inside the, in the waters. Um, 
So it's like examples like that sort of like that, that compound over time, I would imagine. Yes. And then with the abolishment of federalism, uh, all these things begin to compound into what then becomes referred to as the Anglophone problem in Cameroon. What do we do about this territory that feels culturally marginalized, economically marginalized, and politically marginalized? And so when did Paul Bia uh, enter into this this equation? So he is, I guess, suppose, depending on how you count, the longest serving uh, leader of any country probably in the world at this point. An illustrious uh, group of leaders. Yeah, yes. yeah. So oh, I think with, with Mugabe <laughs> gone, he is probably it, right? I think Nguemba in Equatorial Guinea has uh, been in power longer than he has. So he's uh, probably, I think he's second, I think he's taken silver now. He's, he's up there, but it's been at least 35 years. And I know he's up for uh, election again uh, at the end of this year. But so how did his um, stamp, when did he sort of put his stamp on things? And how did he factor into this sort of centralization of authority uh, away from Anglo speaking regions? Well, Paul Bia, uh, really comes to power in a very disputed succession in 1982. Uh, in, in a sort of odd sequence of events, Ahijo resigns from power, appoints Paul B as president, but then holds on to the strings of the political party and tries to rejoin. Paul B accuses Ahijo of uh, plotting a coup against him. Uh, Ahijo goes into exile, and he's even sentenced to death in absentia. So it's a very contentious transition to Paul Bia. Now, to understand Paul Bia, you have to understand that the Anglophone versus Francophone division in Cameroon is only one. Within the Francophone territory, there are disputes between or divisions between northern Cameroonians, where Ahijo was from, the first president, which are largely Muslim, of a number of different ethnic groups, in particular Fulani, versus Paul Bia, who's a southerner. And the southern tends to be more Christian. And Paul Bia comes from a, this is an umbrella term, but an ethnic group that is called the Beti. And there's some other ethnic groups, the Sawa, the Duala, the Bamileke, who are also very important. So they're big ethnic divisions in Francophone Cameroon. And so when Paul Bia comes to power in 1982, this is seen as a big shift in the balance of power away from the north and towards the south. And this creates a lot of grievances. Now, for Anglophones at the period, there's a lot of optimism. Because Paul Bia is a younger leader than Ahijo, he announces what he calls a new deal, which is supposed to include some form of liberalization, more inclusion, more internal democracy within the ruling party. And it's not quite clear if his intentions were always sincere. He talks about this, bringing new blood in, having more uh, voice for Anglophones. Uh, but in 1984, there's an attempted military coup against Bia. And I think this uh, sends big shockwaves through the system that any uh, optimism about a new deal uh, becomes discarded very quickly. And so Paul Bia continues, actually, this process of centralization and marginalization of Anglophones. Now, he makes um, certain symbolic gestures towards Anglophones in the 1990s by reinstating this position of prime minister, which has always historically been an Anglophone since 1992. Uh, but these deep sense of separation, marginalization continue. And in fact, Paul Bia passes even more sort of uh, harsher laws that curtail freedom of movement, freedom of expression, and free media than Nahija did in some sense. So, so 
you've sort of explained sort of how sort of historically uh, there has been this bubbling discontent for you know, seemingly legitimate reasons uh, among Anglophones and the Anglophone regions of, of Cameroon. But why uh, last year or in 2016, as you said, but I, I know it also accelerated last year, did the conflict suddenly become worse and, and more acute? I think there are a number of reasons. Some of these, again, are longer-term causes that have bubbled up before but never as, uh, as dramatically as in the past couple of years. Uh, in the early 1990s, the movement for democracy in Cameroon to abolish the one-party system and incorporate elections was largely an Anglophone movement launched by the Social Democratic Front, which was an Anglophone party from northwestern Cameroon. So these issues have been there before. The 1990s were also a very, very contentious time. It's when this term that comes up if you people follow media in Cameroon called ghost town campaigning, which are large scale massive strikes that empty towns of people and merchants. That was from the early 1990s. That was a tactic used by opposition activists, Anglophone opposition activists in the 1990s. It wasn't only an Anglophone movement in the 1990s, but it started there. Democracy movement started there. So that, that's been there for a while. Um, the immediate causes for uh, these past uh, couple of years have really been the imp so some of the cultural issues that uh, sometimes spark once in a while. And it began with the imposition in 2015, really, of French-educated lawyers uh, into Anglophone areas to be judges. Mm. Uh, and so these are people so that this is part of this heritage of that colonial system is that you really had two legal systems, a French system and a British system based on common law. And the Constitution in Cameroon really tries to recognize both as equal partners, but in practice, imposing French-educated magistrates and judges to the bar in English-speaking Cameroon caused a lot of grievance from lawyers. And in 2015, these lawyers sent this letter uh, to Paul Bia in opposition to this, and the protest began in October 2016, really as a protest of bar associations in Anglophone Cameroon. So, so educated, really, educated, wealthy people protesting the fact that this kind of really foreign form of, of legal traditions are being imposed on, on them. I mean, the, the, it, it's sort of, I, I'm thinking uh, the, the languages are, are reversed of the Quebec issue and, and Quebec separatism and how um, I, I would just imagine, you know, having family in, in Quebec, the kind of um, objections that people would have should, um, you know, the federal government of, of Canada try to impose English law on the Quebec system. Exactly. And it's it's not just it spread so quickly because it wasn't just the legal system. And there are a lot of issues that, for instance, in certain, the Constitution of Cameroon calls for there to be a common law bench on the Supreme Court, and that has never been implemented. Mm. So things that go up to the Supreme Court, they have to go through the French system. This spread very quickly to uh, the educational sector as well, to teachers and student unions protesting over language requirements for entry into universities. Uh, opposition, for instance, that certain exams are only available in French or that certain majors and programs, you really had to be French speaking to get access to those universities. They weren't offered in Anglophone universities. Uh, the big civil service training university is called the National School of Administration and Magistracy. Uh, ENAM is the is the acronym. It's a very prestigious university where lots of Cameroonians who go into the civil service, and they had very few English speaking teachers in the university. Um, and so this spread into this educational sector, into into students and teachers who saw that they weren't having the same opportunities, that they didn't have the same career paths as their uh, as francophones, and so that spread very quickly. 
And then it spread even beyond to these cultural grievances, though. So I think that's one level of it. You have these cultural grievances about language where it's similar to Quebec and French Canada, but also into this sense, though, of economic deprivation at the same time. And so you had protests then from civil society organizations over things like the state of the electrical grid, the state of roads. You had a doctor strike in May of last year over conditions in Anglophone hospitals and the amount of money that was spent in Anglophone hospitals versus in southern Cameroon and southern French Cameroon. And so those two things really overlap very quickly, the cultural grievances and the sense that Cameroon was a, that Anglophone Cameroon was basically a neglected region. And, and so it seems, though, what you're describing are largely peaceful protests by, you know, educated and, and middle class uh, people. So how did this turn violent? Well, it's a, it, they do start that. And I, before I say, answer that, I also say that another factor that why this is happening now and also why the government's response has been so repressive and it's escalated so quickly again, has to do with these dynamics of politics within French Cameroon over, did you mention that Paul Bia has been in power since 1982? He's likely to run again for election this year. He hasn't officially declared, but what's going to happen after Paul Bia? And behind the scene about the, this, the, this question of succession and the distributive politics within this ruling coalition, who gets what, what region gets what, what ethnic group gets what, very much loom behind the scenes here of why the government has been so reluctant to address some of these issues. Because, like I said, there are a lot of overlapping issues. There are some cultural issues, economic issues, but also senses of political grievance that some leaders want a return towards federalism or some form of decentralization of power to Northwest and Southwest Cameroon. And the government in Cameroon is basically not swallowing that. And so protests, signals of secession or independence uh, that intermingled with this were repressed very, very harshly. And that was one of the causes of the escalation. And, and so how did that repression manifest itself? Well, there were protests that sometimes turned into clashes. And, you know, the end of 2016, they started as peaceful protests. They started as massive strikes. And the government was showed very, very little tolerance towards anything that really, in my opinion, uh, would threaten to change the status quo. I think they felt that if they caved to some of these cultural or economic demands, this would open up a whole can of worms, again, about who gets what, in particular if Bia doesn't run in 2018. And so in November and December of 2016, you had uh, a series of mass arrests. I think about four people were killed. The government sent delegations to negotiate with some of the opposition leaders. Uh, they failed to reach any agreement. Very famously in December, Najib Palatanga makes a statement that he doesn't see any discrimination against Anglophones, and this causes a bigger escalation in January of last year, where they try to call for this new ghost town campaign, a massive strike throughout Anglophone Cameroon in January, and the government responded by arresting, airlifting the two major leaders of what is called the Cameroon, the basically the Consortium of Anglophone Civil Society. Uh, by arresting two of their leaders, airlifting them to Yaounde, banning a number of organizations, and shutting down the internet. That happened in January last yeah, year. The, the, I remember the, the internet was shut down for like three Until months. April. Yeah, in, in, in English-speaking regions. It was like for several months there was like an internet shutdown, which is uh, a pretty um, 
a pretty extreme, I, I would think, uh, response in, in one way. But of course, so is shooting protesters and, and arresting civil society leaders. Yeah, so the, it was a big escala- escalation. I think it was the government sort of saying, we're not going to tolerate protests, we're not going to tolerate a general strike, or we're not going to tolerate any language that speaks of decentralization, secession, return to federalism. And then in March last year, the government started to make some symbolic moves towards some sort of reconciliation. It appointed what it called a bilingual multicultural commission. There was a legislative session and they passed ball bills that called for things but didn't actually enact them for, for instance, a common law bench in the Supreme Court, the recruitment of more Anglophone lawyers and judges. Uh, and in April 2017, the internet was restored. In August, some of these charges uh, against some of these leaders were dropped. Uh, by the way, a lot of these charges, are, they're able to make them because Cameroon in 2014 passed a fairly draconian anti-terror bill that gives the government a lot of leeway and how it charges people. So people were, were not arrested in the civilian system, but in the military tribunal. Um, hey, this, so is, this is another classic uh, development in in uh, the recent years in sub-Saharan Africa and some of these totali- more one-party oh, yes. rural states. Um, a, where, a where you use, yeah, where you use, uh, yeah, exactly. You use the um, pretext of, of the war on terror to arrest uh, opponents. Um, but I, I'm wondering, though, throughout this period um, that you're describing last year, it also seems that Anglophone groups became a little more militant and a little more radical themselves. And were there not some um some some uh groups that intended to pursue their aims for an independent i think what they call it ambazonia uh through armed struggle yeah so there's uh, a number of ambazonian uh movements uh a declared organization that operated out of nigeria it's the leader uh, this is the recent news was just arrested in nigeria probably with uh, by nigerian security forces um they have a military council as well. And those factors, you know, they've always been there on the margins. But really, they've become more center stage at the end of last year. And currently, uh, because of the failure of the government and what you might call mainstream opposition to reach any reconciliation mm-hmm. uh, last year. So so uh, like the peaceful protests, the mainstream opposition and the government are not able to reach some sort of accommodation. Principally, it sounds because the government is not willing to give in enough. So you have uh, more radical elements who uh, are sort of saying, look, the, you know, the, the central government is not is not going to give in. We need to take take up arms to pursue our ends. Yeah, it's, it, the oppositions are in a very I say opposition in plural in a very difficult situation because they can't agree on exactly what they want to see happen Mm -hmm. as an end game and what's realistic within the political system that is Cameroon and all these issues of secession, uh, I'm sorry, succession and distribution of resources. And so you have some people in the opposition who wanted to really see immediate uh, resolution of some of those longstanding cultural issues, issues of language and law and education. You wanted to see some people wanted to see some of the economic grievances addressed, more a larger investment budget in Northwest and Southwest. Uh, but then you had some people who were who felt that they would not be able to satisfy everyday people in Anglophone areas unless there was some discussion of political restructuring, federalism or decentralization. And even some of the opposition leaders, I spoke with one of them, Felix Agbor. Uh, I wrote a, a blog post about him on presidential power, and I did an interview with him. And it's very hard to pin him down on exactly what he sees as the end game, because he's shifting with basically this call it the street, if you want, these different voices, these different natures of opposition in the Anglophone areas. 
And the government, I think also because it repressed so harshly in the initial stages of this, it really escalated and elevated a lot of those fringe groups. And so in September last year, you really got a harsh escalation where in September and October, where security forces in response to bomb attacks against police stations, against security forces, killed probably between 25 to 35 people in clashes and shut down the Internet again in October last year. And so now you've had these back and forth. It's really empowered some of these explicit separatist movements to launch bomb attacks, uh, terrorist attacks, basically, against security forces. There's been probably 12 to 15 security forces who have been killed in the past three months. And that has led to even harsher government repression, in particular in southwest Cameroon these days, where there's reports of villages being burnt, uh, basically scorched earth type tactics to oust what they see as separatists. And that's what's leading to all these refugees into Nigeria today. So so I, I wanted to conclude by having a brief conversation about why this all matters to, to the rest of the world. I mean, it is obviously a humanitarian uh, emergency for the you know tens of thousands of people who are fleeing as refugees to Nigeria and you know, potentially also compound to Nigeria's own displacement crisis. But why is, is this something that the rest of the world should be paying attention to? Why does this matter? Well, there's two two reasons. Uh, one, if you, you know, uh, destabilization in Cameroon opens up destabilization in northern Nigeria and Central African Republic, it is strategically the gateway to Central Africa still. Uh, and I, I worry a lot about destabilization in Cameroon, and I worry a lot about sort of the unclear U.S. position towards Cameroon, uh, sometimes conflating short-term versus long-term interests. Um, as well as the European Union and other partners in Cameroon. So I think it's very important to care about this because of the regional importance of Cameroon and the heavy U.S. involvement in that region in the fight against Boko Haram and global terrorism. And I think I, we started with talking about that Cameroon has been this sort of historically stable partner for initially, again, initially the French and now more so the United States. And I think that betrays sort of, again, all these underlying dynamics that uh, have to be resolved somehow. And so 2018 is going to be a critical year because there's a critical election coming up. And if Paul Bia runs again, and I'm, I'm pretty sure he's going to run again because the alternative is destabilization. And I think that's part of the calculus. Is it's really hard to think of an alternative who can manage all of these factions, all of these issues. Uh, but if Paul Bia is elected for another term, it's hard to also see the Anglophone crisis being resolved in the near term. So it's, it's so, interesting. So I was in Yaoundé maybe like six years ago uh, with on, on a reporting trip looking at some some global health programs. And, you know, uh, two things I think in, in retrospect kind of stick out at me. One is is the totality of, of French in, in all the hospitals we visited. Uh, the other is uh, sort of the, the glorification of Paul Bia and, and his wife, Chantal Bia, in, in sort of public spaces. Um which you know is is again like kind of a marker of some some authoritarianism, but you know the the upside, as it were, of that kind of authoritarianism is that some of their public health projects were, were actually quite successful and uh, in in addressing you know things like malaria and HIV AIDS, which is what I was looking at. And so you wonder if you know, it's sort of like the classic example that that you see uh, trade offs you know throughout Africa, like Rwanda, Uganda. You know, do you trade? Yep, yeah. Yeah, do you trade um, these kind of gains on on economic and, and social factors for um, you know assenting to greater authoritarianism? 
it's a it's a classic dilemma for policy. Uh, I think you have to kind of walk and chew gum, don't you? I mean, it's because all those efforts, all those successes that sometimes authoritarian states can make in health, particularly in health, and sometimes in rapid economic development, attracting foreign investment. You know, but Cameroon, there are a lot of underlying risks for all of that. Uh, there's a very unstable, factional, cutthroat style of politics underneath it all, combined with, which is, makes it very different from countries like Rwanda and Ethiopia, massive amounts of public corruption. And so all those successes, without addressing some of these issues of representation, democracy, governance, human rights, th- there's a big threat that they unravel once Paul Bia is out of office. Uh, well, Yonatan, thank you so much for your time. This was helpful and interesting, and I'm, I'm glad we're able to uh, to shine a light on on this very undercovered issue, but one I think that is, is bubbling beneath the surface in important ways. Well, thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much to Yonatan. Thank you all for listening. I was wanting to do an episode on this issue for a while. I, I In my daily searching for global news that I do for Don's Digest, I sort of kept seeing reference to new refugee movements out of Cameroon, out of English being parts of Cameroon. And so I knew this was a, an issue that was kind of bubbling beneath the surface. And I, I thought it was just interesting and important to learn more about it and shine a spotlight on it. So Thank you all. Uh, again, please do leave a review on iTunes. If you're not listening to me on iTunes right now, nonetheless, you can uh, leave a review through a link that I've posted in the description field of the podcast page. Thank you all in advance. You guys are the best. See you soon. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.